Let me pray for us one more time. Lord Almighty, bless us as we seek uh, to understand what you are telling us more exactly. And let us have hearts that look to you. Uh, And we just give you all the praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight is our final lecture on eschatology. And remember, I've told you this is a lecture series, not a preaching series. And I've tried to hold to that um, because preaching always entails looking at a passage, finding out what the Holy Spirit is saying to us about that passage, and then applying it. You don't have preaching if you don't have those three. This is a lecture because we're going over, not only are we going over a number of passages, but it's more, it's just structured that way. Um, And I've also tried to make sure that you remember that there are a number of evangelical, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring views on the um, issues that we've been covering about the millennium, about the vocabulary of eschatology, and tonight looking at the timing of the rapture. Now, I'm convinced that my position is the right one, Uh, But I know that there are those in this room who disagree with me now and will disagree with me when we're done tonight and you'll be convinced yours is the right one and that's okay. We can remember that we love Jesus together because there are two things that, two verses that we must remember and the first is Romans 15.4, our theme verse for this whole series. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, you and I might have hope. The reason the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel and the Thessalonians, the reason the whole Bible was written is so that you can have encouragement. And the second verse we need to remember is Revelation 22 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, one more time, what do we agree on? First of all, that Christ is coming visibly, personally, bodily, and soon. I take that from Acts 1. Secondly, we must live in eager expectation of Christ's return because his return is our blessed hope. I I need some amens on here, guys. I know we all agree on these. And number three, we don't know when Christ is going to come, but We do have significant clues so that when he comes, we won't be surprised. And I find that in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. But what don't we agree on? The thing that we don't agree on, and many of us will not agree together on this, is the timing of the rapture. What is it about Christ coming back for his people? Essentially, the A-mill, the post-mill, and the historic pre-mill, remember these are the views, three of the four views we've been looking at about the millennium, agree that Jesus will come for his church at the end of the tribulation. Now, we view what that millennium looks like, we view what that tribulation looks like differently, 
But we agree that the rapture, the coming back of Christ for his people will occur at the end. And the dispensational premillennial folks think that he's going to come at the beginning. Now, I'm going to say at the start, I am giving short shrift and I'm sorry, I'm simplifying these different views, the pre-trib view, the mid-trib view, the partial rapture view, and the pre-wrath view. If you don't know what those views are, don't worry about it. Uh, you can look it up online, and, and if you look up Wikipedia uh, rapture, then you'll, you'll kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. But I'm, I'm kind of bringing all these views in, into one because I think all four of them would call themselves dispensational in orientation. And while the dispensationalist orientation is the majority view of the United States and Western evangelicals perhaps, it is the vastly minority view in the history of the church. And that is important to catch because what I want to say now is I want to just give kind of a brief summary. Boy, that didn't, can you guys read that? It's not very clear, is it? Okay, well, we'll try to make it clear. Uh, the pre-tribulational rapture view, if this here is looked at as the rapture, or the um, tribulation, it's kind of divided in half and this First three and a half years, they're calling the beginnings of the birth pangs. And then the second half is what we call the great tribulation. And there's essentially four views of when we will be raptured during the uh, tribulation. And the, the, like I said, the dispensational view normally is the pre-tribulational rapture. So they think we're, Jesus is coming for his church, and then the earth is going to be experiencing the wrath of God here, followed by the 1,000-year millennium. The mid-tribulational view is a minority view among dispensationalists, and they say that right smack dab in the middle of the tribulation, Jesus is going to come for his church. That is this one here. And following that will be the wrath of God poured out on the earth. The post-trib view is the one that the tribulation occurs and at some point the wrath of God begins in there at some point. And we believe that uh, God will guard us or take us through. He will protect us through the tribulation where we will be raptured, the second coming will come, and then we'll enter into the, the thousand year millennium. And lastly is what's called the pre-wrath rapture view. And I'll just say that I have sympathies for this view. Uh, what the pre-wrath view says is we're not really sure exactly what day God is going to be pouring out his final wrath on mankind, but the rapture will occur at that moment. So there will be a measure of tribulation that is happening during this final seven years called the great tribulation. But God will come back and rapture his people there. I'm just going to say right now, I, I have sympathy for this view. Uh, I'm not going to really talk about it a lot more tonight uh, because, well, you'll see why 
here in a minute. But um, I, I do call myself a post-triver. So I'm hoping, because I didn't bring uh, Rob Wright's body armor, that none of you brought anything to shoot me with. Are we still good? Okay, good. Let's, let's continue. I said last week, and actually two weeks ago as well, that the message of the book of Revelation can be summed up in one sentence. And that one sentence is, God will enter into time and history, number one, to destroy the wicked, and number two, to redeem the righteous. Most everyone agrees that this blessed hope occurs in the book of Revelation. Jesus' second coming occurs in Revelation 19.11 through following. Now what we don't agree on is the how and when of all of the events described around that second coming take place. And so tonight what I want to do is divide my time into three main points. I want to say... Are the rapture and second coming going to happen with an extended period of time between them? Is there going to be seven years, three and a half years, uh, depending on how you view it? Is that going to happen? And then we're going to address what specifically does 2 Thessalonians 2 talk about? This is going to be a big part of our discussion. And then third, we're going to look one more time at the verses we looked at the beginning of this series at the imminent passages that Christ could come at any moment, the imminent passages, and we're going to look at some of the sign passages, what signs need to happen in between. And lastly, to wrap it up, I want us to remember to have hope. My friends, No matter what happens, you have access to the God of hope. The God who is greater than anything and everything Satan can throw at you. Your God is greater than any and every suffering or illness or tribulation that might come. And God will make sure that all of the momentary and slight afflictions of this world will be far outweighed by the glory that will be given to the sons of God in eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's where we're going. So let's look at this. And to begin, we're going to look at the passage that everybody agrees talks about this rapture. And that's in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 16. Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, as I said, everyone in this discussion agrees that this text speaks clearly about what has come to be known as the rapture. And the rapture, many of you know, is, comes from a Latin term that is translating the words right here, caught up in verse 17. And rapture as a word is useful. It, it talks about this catching up, but it is a loaded term. And most people, when they hear the word rapture, they think of what we think of as the pre-tribulational rapture, that Jesus is coming back to resurrect those dead in Christ and to catch away those who are alive in Christ. 
But I want to show that it is closely associated with the second coming. And my chief, my first evidence for the rapture occurring at at least a very close period of time to the second coming are the very next words following 1 Thessalonians 4. And that is 5, 1, and 2. Paul writes, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, I want to draw your attention to an important fact. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are left will be caught up together with him. So Christ is coming. He will resurrect those who are dead in Christ. He will rapture or catch up those who are alive in Christ. And immediately following... It describes this period as the day of the Lord will appear, will come like a thief in the night. Now, we have very little explicit information on the timing of the second coming and rapture, although here those two events are very closely tied together. And notice that the second coming is described as before the rapture is described. I think that's significant. But it turns out that we have more information on the day of the Lord. So with this one passage, we tie together the ideas of rapture, second coming, and day of the Lord. Now what is the day of the Lord? Joel chapter 2. And God said, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth and blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. And the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those with whom the Lord calls. Note, by the way, there's going to be survivors after the great day of the Lord. And those are the people who are going into the millennium. That's last week's discussion. Okay. And God gives the opportunity during the day of the Lord to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Praise Jesus. Amen? Amen. I, I'll tell you, I've had this thought for years. I hope the day of the Lord comes because I hope my dad is one of those who finally wakes up out of his stupor of sleep and realizes that the Lord is Savior and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Amen? You can pray that for your beloved ones as well. Now, whether you take these wonders in the heavens that Paul, or Joel, excuse me, is talking about as literal, or if you, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, take them to be apocalyptic staples, referring to cataclysmic judgment, the point is here that all of these things will happen at or during the day of the Lord. The very day which is described as the one in which Jesus is returning. Second passage, Isaiah 13. 
Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at rising and the moon will not shed its light. This is bad stuff, people. Again, whether it's literal things happening in the heavens or if it's figurative describing the judgment that's coming at that moment, either way, we need to have hope. We need to have hope that God is going to be with us through this. And fortunately for us, we have Matthew 24 that describes these same events. 24 verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other." Notice, clearly in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, and then once again, in order, the second coming, followed by the verses describing the resurrection of the dead and the rapture. Now, dispensationalists have their theory, and I'm not going to go into it right now, why they say Matthew 24 doesn't describe the rapture, but it's clear if you look at this, the only place you're going to find the rapture in Matthew 24 is here in verse 29, which clearly puts it after the tribulation. And verse 29 self-limits this event that's being described as the second coming. This is, this, this is the chronology that Jesus gives us. And it's how I take it. So I take it that the day of the Lord will begin, followed by tremendous tribulation <coughs> erupting all over the world. Now, we don't have an exact time. And I don't, I'm not believing that we'll be able to say, oh, oh that's the beginning of the tribulation. I, don't, I, I think the man of lawlessness will be revealed and there will be some signs that Jesus is giving. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I don't think we're necessarily, believers are going to be able to say, oh, tribulation started 10 minutes ago. You ready? I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. But tri tribulation will come. Jesus Christ will return and claim his own by resurrecting the dead and by rapturing or catching up those who are alive. And then... In short order, after his return, Jesus will come and set up his millennial kingdom. And this is why Paul can say in Titus chapter 2, 11 to 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Right now, he's talking about us. And then, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is exactly what we read about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and then here in Matthew 24. 
The blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I note here in passing that this is glorious. This is in your face. Jesus, when he comes back, he's not coming back to deal with sin. He's coming back to bring with him those who have trusted him. Amen? This is the blessed hope. Now, that's my initial salvo. That's my shot across the bow. I think, in, in my opinion, that actually is enough. But I think there's another argument that talks about the fact that we have our blessed hope is in a post-tribulational rapture, and that is in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the rapture. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. I, forgive me, I, I really don't want to appear to be a smart aleck, but I, I, that's just how I read it. it. It seems to me straightforward in this order that Jesus is giving. But my point must be at least this. So far, we haven't found any verses that divide the events of the second coming and the rapture. Now, let me be fair, because I think this is an important point. There are passages that talk primarily about the rapture, and then there are other passages that talk primarily about the second coming. And these two passages, when you, these classes of passages, when you read them, there's a perfectly good argument that says, look, they're separated. And I agree with that. I understand that. But as we've said for the past several weeks, we need to interpret the unclear passages with the clear passages. And if we have at least two passages, three passages so far, depending on how you look at it, that indicate that these are actually one event, a complex event, mind you. I'm not saying that they're not complex. And I'm not even saying if, if it is a complex event, well... Does Jesus rapture and there's an hour? You know, does Jesus come and immediately finishes coming back down? I don't know. I don't know. But what seems clear in the text so far is that this complex event, which may be days separated, I don't know, appears to me to be after what we call the great tribulation. So, Let's continue. Um, first, let's go back to verse 1 again. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now again, everybody in the discussion on this passage agrees that this man of lawlessness is also known as the beast, is also known as the Antichrist. He, he comes with various names, and I'm sure he's going to give himself some names um, that, you know, occur to his imagination. 
But the point is, is that this man of lawlessness, the beast, the Antichrist, must come before Christ returns. So, Paul is saying to them, don't fret, don't worry, don't be thinking that you missed the rapture because you sinned one too many times, kind of like Pastor Benji was saying to us this morning, if you think that you're going to miss the rapture because you said one too many swear words, you don't understand grace. Instead, let us put our hope in that grace and recognize that we haven't missed anything yet because as far as we know, the, the Antichrist isn't here yet, or at least he hasn't revealed himself. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming to be God. At this point, the question we need to ask ourselves about this text is why would Paul spend so much time describing the Antichrist if the Christians he was writing to would never have an opportunity to see him because they're raptured? And then any identifying marks will be superfluous because they're with Jesus and they'll see it for what it is. Okay, ha, huh, there he is. But on the contrary, I think there's a better explanation of why Paul would go through the work of explaining who the Antichrist is, and that is because it was entirely possible for the Thessalonians to see him, to be here on earth when he comes. Just like now, almost 2,000 years later, there's a perfectly good chance that every single person in this room will see the Antichrist. Because he could come at any time. We don't know when he will come. Therefore, pay attention. Be on the lookout for someone who sets themselves up above God. Be on the lookout for someone who is a son of lawlessness. They want laws, the laws that govern relationships and institutions and all kinds of things to be flushed down the toilet. Pay attention. Verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he is out of the way. Now this passage is taken to mean that the Holy Spirit is removed at the rapture of the church. If you take a pre-tribulational view of um, what's going to happen, then the Holy Spirit exits the world as we know it when he raptures the church. Well, I, I have a very simple question about that. What do you mean by the Holy Spirit being removed? What does that mean? If, because if you mean by that, that the Holy Spirit is no longer active on the earth, then my question is, who saves the tribulational saints according to the dispensational view? Okay, who saves the 144,000? It's got to be the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can save. Can anybody but the Holy Spirit save? 
Okay, so then my question is, what specifically is Paul getting at here? Specifically, what he's getting at is something is going to be removed so that the man of lawlessness can come into power. Now, could that be the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. I'm fully willing to say that that's the Holy Spirit who is, who's job of restraining the man of lawlessness is taken away. And so to that extent, that particular job of the Holy Spirit is no longer going to be functioning. And the man of lawlessness says, woohoo, we're going to kill marriage. Never mind. I won't go that way. So, my friends, again, I, I want to say this carefully. Just because we have heard a thousand times in our lives that the Holy Spirit is removed at the rapture of the church doesn't mean it's true. How many of you have been told a million times that Darwinian evolution is true? Are you going to buy that just because you've heard it so many times? My friends, I, I really want to... I want to get into your mind and your hearts here because this is what we've been told many, 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 many times that the Holy Spirit leaves when the church is raptured. But that idea, I, I don't think is true. It doesn't make the best evidence, doesn't make the most of the evidence that is given. Is the Holy Spirit the one who restrains all in this? Absolutely. Is he talking about the Holy Spirit here? Yes, I believe so. But he's talking about him in a limited sense. And that sense is that he's removing his, his pushing down of the man of lawlessness. So, the fact remains that no one, not myself, no one else, can give a definitive answer on this question other than this simple fact, what Paul says, he is the restrainer who restrains lawlessness. And Paul is giving us an important clue as to the reality of the work of Satan's number one henchman. What does Satan want his number one henchman, the Antichrist, to do? Lawlessness. He wants to get rid of the laws because when lawlessness, when anarchy reigns, Satan is pleased. This lawlessness is going to be perpetrated by someone who is in a governing authority. But that shouldn't surprise us. How many dictators throughout history have been lawless once they've been in power? They get the Sturmabteilung and the SA in Germany. They get their secret police. They get whoever it is to enforce their lawlessness. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth. I love that. I need to hear an amen on that. Amen. Jesus is going to kill the Antichrist with a word. And he's done. Amen. He will bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. You see someone starting to do quote unquote miracles, guess what? You need to run away from him. 
and with all the wicked deception of those who are perishing. Those who are perishing, why are they perishing? They are perishing because they have refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, love the truth. Go to God's word. Find the truth. Absorb the grace of God that you need. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All of this seems like a New Testament description of the exact same day of the Lord we saw in Joel 2 and Isaiah 13 and the many passages that I didn't bother going to tonight. And it brings us to the final two questions because... I think that the best argument for the dispensational pre-tribulational view, this is, I think, their number one argument, is the fact that they believe that the rapture can come at any moment. I'm just laying down my cards. If, if, there, if there is a problem with my view, that's, I think, the best place to start looking for it. So let's look at some of these so-called imminent passages. I'm going to kind of read through them quickly and hit some main points. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. Mark 13. They're in your notes, by the way. The verses are outlined. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. The point of Mark 13 is to encourage you and me to stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or in the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Philippians 4, let your reasonableness be known to all. In other words, reasonableness in this case means thoughtful communication of reality. You're, you're telling them what good thinking looks like. Let your reasonableness be known to all. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He is as close as your fingers. James 5, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious food of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's as close as your fingertips. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. You know, the guy wearing the, the placard walking down the street. He's right. He's right. And because he's right, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? Why should we be self-controlled and sober-minded? So that you can pray. In light of the fact that Jesus could come at any moment, pray. Amen? Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written. In other words, obey the promises and commands of God and God's word. 
for the time is near. Revelation 3, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so no one may seize your crown. Trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Verse 22, 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Therefore, the implication there is do good. Glorify God with your attitudes and actions. Now note, this is absolutely crucial. As you look at all these imminent verses, the point is not that you believe that you will avoid the tribulation. God is not giving us peaches and cream on a silver platter in bed with a nice hot cup of coffee, right, Harders? The point is that you must stay awake. You must be courageously thoughtful. You must be patient. You must pray. You must hold strongly to the faith. And you must do good to the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom. That's why the imminent passages are there. Now, There's a second set of passages that apply to the same general idea. And these are the passages that talk about the signs that must take place before Jesus returns. Mark 13, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, we can say all these have been fulfilled, right? I suppose. Verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. Has that been fulfilled? Perhaps. 22, false Christ and false prophets must arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I'm going with John on this one when he says that many antichrists will come. I think Hitler was an antichrist. So was Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. I think there's been hundreds of antichrists. Now, the antichrist hasn't yet shown himself if he is alive. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Boy, we're finding that, those verses all over the Bible, aren't we? But that must happen. Romans 11. If their trespass, Jews, Israel's trespass means riches for the world. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. You know what? I think I I was supposed to put another verse there. But that's a good verse anyways. How much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, God's grace is going to pour out even on the Jews. Let's see. uh, Before I read the next one. Um, (laughs) Okay, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Oh my goodness. Now that is a much disputed passage, what that means. But the point that Paul is getting at is we're going to see a large number of Jews come to Christ. And I think it is those 144,000 that is spoken of in Revelation. What exactly that looks like is 144,000 symbolic, figurative. I don't pretend to know. Maybe it will be literally 144,000 Jews 
We'll have to wait and find out. But notice the purpose of the signs. My friends, this is absolutely crucial. Why the signs? They are to encourage you to stay awake, to be courageously thoughtful, to be patient, to pray, to hold strongly to the faith, and to do good deeds to the glory of God and to the growth of his kingdom. God knows that you and I tend to fall asleep and forget and to not be patient. And we fail to wait on the Lord. And so Jesus and other prophets have come along and they have said, look, these signs are coming and because they're coming, you can be assured. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was this late. Okay, so the question is, how do we reconcile these two Passages. Well, the first is to note that the point of the imminent passages is that we need to stay awake and be watchful. The second point is that while we're, we, we must be watchful according to 1 Peter 3, 10 to 12, which says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is to do evil against those who do evil. And lastly, we must not be caught off guard. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Have you ever read that verse before? You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Evidently, Paul believed that Christians would know that Christ is returning. Evidently, Paul believed that there would be sufficient evidence for Christians who are alive at the second coming of Christ to know that it's about to happen. We won't know the day or the hour. You will never hear me give a prophecy that Christ is coming on July 4th. That, that kind of stuff is beyond the pale. That is non-Christian. But evidently, Paul thought we would have enough evidence that we could say, he is coming quickly. He is coming again. And it is entirely within the scope of these passages that the signs are to draw our attention to the fact that we must live these holy lives because Christ is near. Because my stubborn foolishness will prevent me from seeing the signs that ought to be clear. And so God sends me a reminder. And lastly, Christ can come at any moment because we don't know how long it'll take for these signs to happen. They might be happening right now in Iraq. I don't know. We're not watching the news. But my point is, is that these things can happen quickly. So you ask me, do I believe that Christ can come at any point? I say yes. I'd say I I think it would take a little bit of time. But the point of the imminent passages is that I stay awake, is that I am patient, and that I am in prayer. And I believe that at least part of the reason why pre-tribulational rapture is so wildly popular is because I am a wuss when it comes to suffering. Amen. I'm surprised that wasn't my wife who said amen. (laughs) I am a wuss. And please, 
don't use the foolish argument that I've heard many times in my 25 years of being a Christian. Well, if you want to go through the tribulation, it doesn't really matter what I want, does it? It matters what God's word says. And that is the ultimate, that is the ultimate standard. We're going to do communion in just a minute. But I want to leave you with one thing. Do not be afraid of the tribulation because God's pe God has brought his people through tribulation many times. The flood, Egypt, Babylon, the siege of Stalingrad, the United States in the 1980s, Wow, that one failed. I'll have to remember that. Second Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in all good works. And Acts 20, verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. My friends, you don't need to be afraid of anything on this earth because your God is with you. Let's pray and have the men come forward for communion. Lord Almighty, once again we come before you and we recognize that you are for us and not against us. And Lord, we covered some difficult, um, we covered difficult territory today, and God, I pray that we would have a heart that looks to you and celebrates you in spite of us. Bless us now as we prepare to take your supper. In Jesus' name, amen.